This is uh, Joshua Bell with his Tuesday morning uh, Bible study and the Kilt on the Cloth uh, podcast. We are continuing our conversation on the resurrection stories. And um, I would like us to begin uh, with a question from Robert Cunningham. <laughs> okay, the question I have is from last week, <clears throat> which I wasn't here but listened to later, when uh, it ended with... Jesus being uh, discussed as being anointed as king of men. And that was coming off of the lady that uh, anointed him with expensive uh, oils right previous to that. And he <clears throat> made the statement that, you know, she's anointing me because uh, soon I'll die. I'm paraphrasing all of this. But that was the gist of it, that, you know, he won't be there much longer. Uh, everybody else will be the, you know, the reason you want it, or they didn't want her to use expensive oil. And then that uh, progressed into that, uh, you know, everybody that can and has been anointed, and then Jesus has been anointed King of Men. And I was just trying to, and then it ended. So for, my question is, how did we get from? Uh, him being anointed and him saying so uh, for his death to him being anointed as uh, king of men. Okay. So uh, I want to start from Hebrew Bible and then move forward. So uh, another part of this is does, does God anoint humans in, in the midst of that? Um and so I want to talk about the ancient ritual of anointing first and then kind of work into it. So the ritual that we know of is that it was used specifically for healing and anointing of leaders, whatever that leader was. So whether it was a priest, a prophet, a king, uh, there was an anointing process that happens. Some, and I'm and I'm and I'm using this very loosely, would say that Isaiah, for example, was an anointed prophet uh, because anointing didn't always just happen with oil there was a process of um, anointing by fire um, so in isaiah 6 verses 1 through 8 there's the the temple dream that he has um, and there's seraphim in there and one of the seraphim takes a coal off the altar and puts it to his lips and from that point on everything that he says is the word of God. So there's there's this uh, fire, anointing by fire that takes place. Moses has a similar experience. And, and please understand, I'm, I'm talking very loosely about anointing by fire, but this is uh, one could make the argument of that anointing doesn't always happen from oil. So um, there's a lot of these interesting stories that take place with uh, prophets specifically in the ways that they were chosen. Um, now, over time, the, the part that is really interesting for me as a, a, a person that studies liturgy is, is that over time, that ritual changes and the tradition of anointing then includes oil. Now it's oil. but uh, And you start to see this in places like um, where... Uh, Samuel anointed da David, you know, you, you, you start to see the, the, the gradual change that oil is for this, 
fire is for that. And so uh, when you start reading it in scripture, uh, you start you start to see it this way. So by the time you get to Jesus, the ritual has kind of lost its meaning and affect. That so this anointing by oil or nard from the the person um, is it's it's almost as if they're reclaiming the ritual for he is now the king of men, and the only one at that time that would have been anointed would have been somebody in royalty or nobility because priests at this point were anointed by each other right and they were all corrupt is is the point that mark is trying to uh, illuminate um that uh, luke does this too luke does a really good job with this that the all of the elite and the religious leaders were so corrupt that their anointing meant nothing compared to the anointing of Jesus. So there is two parts to this that he, it is uh, preparing him for his burial ritual, but yet at the same time, uh, Robert also commented on the fact that Jesus was anointed because baptism in, in all of the gospels has now taken a different role, right? Baptism up until this point was, as you gave a burnt offering, you, you went into the ritual cleansing, but in, in the Gospels, all three of them, God's voice is clearly heard. Uh, whether it's Jesus hears it or the crowd hears it, God's voice is spoken. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. That That's important to recognize. So that is, in every aspect, Robert, you're 100% right, in the discussion that we were having before, uh, can be viewed as an anointed experience. And the proof that you would need is... Uh, the Samuel story uh, with David. Samuel did not feel that Saul should be anointed. You, you, you remember that story? The, the the crowd said, we want Saul. We want Saul. He says, I don't think that's who we're supposed to do. And, and then God says to him, yeah, go ahead. But when you do it, just understand that all of these things are going to take place. It sounds like this curse that takes place. Israel is going to have this happen and Israel is going to have this happen. But the one that I choose will lead them into a, a time of glory and a time of victory and all this other stuff. And so he anoints Saul because he's the people's choice. And then God leads him. And it's the, the greatest, uh, I don't want to say fairy tale. It's the greatest uh, story of anointing of a king of all time. That's who they always refer to. You remember King David? You know, I mean. They anoint King David. He anoints King David in so much so he does exactly like this lady does. He pours the whole bottle of oil over the top of David. Now, I wasted nothing on him. I gave my entire being to David in the same way that this woman anoints Jesus as Samuel does. So she technically becomes a prophet. Uh, I would have a professor say that 100% this woman becomes a prophet so yes okay i know what anointing is but what does it really mean how is it different than um god's word to jesus because you needed a conduit humans had to have a connection piece what is how is that different than sprinkling a baby with water Nothing. okay it's basically mm -hmm. you're anointing a baby with water mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. It's an acknowledgement with some authority. Yeah, it's I acknowledging mean, okay. God's presence in the moment, and there's a, <clears throat> a connection between us and the divine. And, and so for the faith, the Christian church uh, decided, <laughs> the, the church that doesn't take stands, took a stand and said, we recognize all baptisms for that exact reason, because to say that someone being sprinkled as a child says that God was not present at that moment. Now, someone that comes into faith later on in life and says, I was anointed as a child or infant baptized, and I have come to it now later in life. I want to profess my faith in Jesus. Uh, that's a different conversation, but we don't have to re-anoint them. Um, but sometimes people say, but I really would like to be. And that's a different conversation. I mean, that's a that's a different. I mean, you didn't get to make that choice as an infant. You do it as an adult. Um, so for us, uh, I mean, I've I think the part that I think we sometimes get stuck on is is the baptism, the oil, the water, um, the liturgy is set in place um, to say, here's the conduit between the divine and humanity. What What's the way that we can connect those two things? Okay. For the Christian church, it was being immersed uh, baptismally, uh, being baptized by immersion. For others, it's being uh, sprinkled as an infant. Uh, for some, it's being anointed by oil. Now, I typically view oil in a different way today than I did back then. I probably would have used oil. I still use oil specifically as a conduit between God and humanity in divine moments, like Ash Wednesday. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's an important moment. Or um, if somebody asks me to anoint them with oil for healing. Uh, I, I don't have any issues with that at all. Um, there's liturgically, biblically, there's, it's kind of out of the ordinary. It's in the realm of it's, I call it the nexus of, we don't know. <laughs> right. Cause uh, the church doesn't really have any, not, it doesn't really have anything written down uh, as to why we continued with oil. Um, you know, olive oil is, <clears throat> but it been back then was in abundance still is absolutely in abundance um and then you come to the united states we don't grow all of you know vineyards it had great value had great value yeah absolutely and it was a a source of sustenance in life you know in the united states um i don't i don't know if people want to be anointed with barbecue grease you know i think which we have and an abundance of you know i i think you know so that's i think that's part of I think that I think this is really cool that you all caught on to that because uh, Mark does a really good job with that. Those these he he pays homage to the institution or the tradition of life uh, of our faith, and he adds more. So, uh, for example, we're we're gonna we're gonna go into verse ten, and he's gonna talk about Judas betraying Jesus, <clears throat> and he does it in two verses, and then instantaneously after that. He switches to the institution of the Lord's Supper. So, right, I mean, so you've got this anointing at Bethany, and then you've got Jesus's, Judas's betrayal. It's in two verses. But he shows you these liturgical traditions that were taking place 
that Jesus is establishing before his death. So, uh, when I one of the articles that I wrote was, I believe that the Gospel of Mark being written at that time frame, and the historical analysis of this is saying these are the institutions that were created so that the church could continue after Jesus ascended into heaven for us. So, what is it that a church should do? Right. Like what is what are the things that we should do? Not um, well, we've always done it this way. OK, cool. But why? Uh, my, my professors always get annoyed with me on this because I always say, yeah, I think it, I think communion is good, but I want to know why. I think it's really good that we do this, but I want to know why. Uh, like, let me give you a really good example and then we're going to move on. <clears throat> when I was first starting out in churches. 26, 27 years ago, every church that I ever worked with, um, had a Mother's Day fiasco. I, I'm just, I'm just going to call it as it is. <clears throat> the Mother's Day fiasco is this. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have uh, a church that historically would have on Mother's Day. You would call out the mom, that's the oldest in the congregation. You'd call out the mom that had the most children. You'd call out the the mom that had the, the youngest mom in the room. And then you'd give them awards. You'd give them flowers. You'd give them all of this stuff during worship. Okay. Now, I don't have a problem with honoring mothers, but then you think of those people that are sitting in the pews that lost children and, and weren't able to have kids. What are you telling them? And that's a higher number than we give credit to. Um, then you're telling the families that chose not to have children for whatever reason, for health or whatever, uh, that that was okay. What about, what about those people that didn't get married and that were women and and didn't have kids. So we're saying that they're less than? But no, 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 it's okay. Let's have the Mother's Day fiasco and everybody has a good time and hand out flowers. And it's okay. We'll do it on a Sunday morning during worship. And everybody should be happy about that and go home. So I remember listening to it as, as a kid or, you know, first starting up. I know all of us did it. All of our churches did it. And notice that nobody does it anymore. Well, if they do, shame on them. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Probably worked preached so hard about being a mother was the only way to go that on a, on a Mother's Day when they gave flowers or whatever. And I happened to be visiting and I took offense at it, but just for myself, but the church in general took offense at it for Trilby Morrison. Anybody old enough to remember Trilby oh, Morrison? Yeah. yeah. She was a nurse. For Dr. Cook that had that hospital on 7th Street, mm -hmm. up a block or two, and had been a nurse there her whole life, I guess. I don't know. And she was very active in the church. She was um, Sunday school superintendent when I was in elementary school, I remember. And so then he had to backtrack, and, and they had a Trilby Morrison day. Oh, I had to have a whole Sunday for her. Yeah, I mean, see, and this is this is the fiasco that you run into. You know, it's, it's, uh, and first off, I, 
I want to apologize on behalf of the church before that ecclesiastical brain damage that was inflicted upon you. Because it's, you know. Well, when you get to think about, I'm sure you have mothered your nieces and nephews. It makes no difference. Right. So that's that's what Pam always tells me. Yes. That's right. Our own mothers. So I try really hard that when we acknowledge mothers, we do it biblically, right? You know, Jesus had a mom. All of us did too. <laughs> that 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 we part's important. Huh? We wouldn't be here. That's right. We wouldn't be here That's without right. them. Right. They're they're uh but to turn that in as an institution for for worship is extremely dangerous. You know what I mean? So what Mark does beautifully is as he creates worship experiences for us that we can actually connect to. Um, like the anointing at someone's death or acknowledgement of their royalty. Um, the things that the church has done, in spite of that, you would find as you continue to research them are not biblical. Some, most of them are geographic. Uh, why did they do this? You know, I'm always about that. Why did you do it this way? You know, the baptism in the, in the river versus in the sanctuary, you know, those, those things are a big deal. I, I literally was in the South and I heard churches, congregations that would say a baptism isn't real unless it's in the river behind the church. Mm. And they were serious about this. And they and, were just lucky they had a river. And they were just church. lucky they had a river uh, church by the river. And so this, these are the things that I want you to be thinking about because as we continue to read through the gospel of Mark, it's a perfect lens to look at the first century as is as if this is the very first time this has ever happened. Because that's really kind of what's happening. Does that make sense? So with that being said, I uh, I got on my soapbox. Uh, today's a big day for me, specifically about worship. So let's read. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Well, thank you, Mark. That was there's a that's pretty fast. Pretty fast. Uh, Do you think Mark did not feel like there's all this discussion of was Judas really guilty or did he do what needed to be done? And when Mark sees a little of that. So, yes, uh, I think Mark has a uh, a beautiful way of doing this in a second. <laughs> Everything that took place had to take place. He, he doesn't allude to anything else. Matthew and Luke, they add allusion mm -hmm. to the stuff. A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. Um, uh, Mark doesn't. It's this is what happened and had to happen in this order. Um, John, um, please forgive me, everybody that's listening to the recording and everybody in this room. J John goes all over the place um with metaphor and analogy and allegory and 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 he, and he just does all of this stuff which makes it really confusing for us because we've got this homogenized thing and the reason i love mark is he says all of these things had to happen in this order in order for this to take place and so yes the long answer for your awesome question is that yes mark believes yeah, Judas was going to betray Jesus. This is why. 
And notice that there's no mention of how much uh, or the money. The money wasn't really important to Mark. No, none of it. I mean, Jesus is important. Jesus, yeah. And, and, I mean, it, it happens. Right. It happens. So which, let's get to Jesus. Which the part that's awesome that Mark does because of Judas is this part. In verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, does it say teacher? No. Agree? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, where is my guest room where where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will uh, show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said not to them. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. So while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm just going to pause right there. So I want to point out just a few things. <coughs> he has the conversation about who's He doesn't say who. He says someone is going to betray me. Someone sitting at this table. They become distressed. Just one. Just one. Notice how he says it that way. Uh, but it could be. We know that there's more. Uh, and, and then he's going to get to Peter. So I don't want to give away too much yet. And then my favorite part is verses 22 through 25. Simple, sweet instructions of how to have the Lord's Supper. Take a loaf of bread. Bless it. Break it. This is what it represents. Take a cup of wine, bless it, share it. This is what it represents. And remember that every time that you do this, you will do this again until we meet each other again in the kingdom of God. Yep. Quick question. Out of Luke, Sunday's sermon. <laughs> the two people that he was walking with didn't recognize him until he broke bread. Mm-hmm. There's got to be an assumption there that there was something different about that, whether, oh. whether it be spiritual, whether it actually be in the act that, you know, you just broke bread and passed it down. You didn't bless it when you broke it. I mean, there there was something 
I'm just going to say miraculous. Mm -hmm. That's when they recognized him. Mm -hmm. The poofy was gone. Yeah, no, that's that's on purpose. That's a a hundred percent what Luke is alluding to. There is this that. So Luke is written later. So evidently, this is an argument that Luke's churches have had some sort of moment where they're breaking bread and saying, "This is my body, and this is my this is wine. This is Jesus's blood," and it's not being made serious and so luke is saying look when you take this something miraculous takes place here that's that's where the other faith traditions say oh this is our proof the same scripture that i use to say something beautiful takes place here is the same scripture that people use and say this is where it literally turns into jesus's body this is where it turns to literally jesus's wine I mean, blood, this this is how you know, because it was miraculous here in Luke. John makes another allusion to it as well. You know, here it is, big time. So it's obviously written later, but it's designed to say something miraculous or mysterious takes place. And it's in that place that you recognize Christ as Savior. And since we're in Mark, mm-hmm. I mean, back to Judas, mm-hmm. two lines. Yep. I mean, here he's got got it all laid out. So what was the how did how does the Passover with the disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper differ in your mind for the very first time? You've heard this. I don't know, but I have I have two things. Um when you enter the town, you will see a man carrying a jug of water. And I never thought about that again, but that's very unusual. The men didn't carry the water. No. The the women and and young younger boys might, but not the men. So that would have been unusual. The other thing is, where the heck did they find a room big enough to have twelve people upstairs in somebody's house? Yeah. They didn't have houses like that. Yeah. No. That's that's definitely someone's. Does it say upper room? It does. It does. Yeah. You you a large room upstairs. So um. Uh. I can tell you that. When I've been there, they didn't build outwards, they built upwards. But the houses still weren't that big. So in order for somebody to have that type of house, they had to it had to have been like an inn, which is where we get the stuff from. Um, but yeah, no, it's just it's a it's a weird logistical story. Anthropologically, it could have happened this way very easily, you know, because like there are certain places in Jerusalem, especially um, the west side of Jerusalem, where all of the Jews and others lived, that there were two-story houses all over the place, but not big enough to house 12 people. I've had archaeologists argue and say, yeah, no, that it was absolutely possible, but not to have a meal. Like well, that's, It just says room. Yeah. It, not a restaurant. Right. Because they... They prepared the well, and, food and brought it there. Yeah, and there would have been more than twelve people. Right. Oh, yeah. Exactly. There is a distinction here. They follow the man carrying the jar of water into that, but then they speak to the master of the house. Right. So the jug person is not necessarily the master of the house person. Kind of gives me an indication that it would say there's there's house of means. Yeah, some means there. Yeah. And there's a I have to rabbit trail. 
just give me two seconds. So give me, give me, let's, you know, let's, let me, give me a little minute. Uh, this jug of water image and and a, and a man is passed throughout a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls and Nag Hammadi. Um, and it doesn't say that the jug of water is full. It doesn't tell you anything else. Uh, but there's this idea um, that people uh, are being are following the uh, the sustenance of life, which is water. And throughout history, there's the images of these people going to wells and taking the sustenance of life out into the world. And so that this jug of water is the presence of God leading them to someplace. Uh, it's a rabbit trail. It's not something that one can spend a lot of time on it academically, but it is, there is, I mean, in Thomas, there is a story of, about a man holding a, a jug of water and Mark comes closer to the gospel of Thomas historically than the others. So uh, I remember reading about that one specifically because the guy that has the jug of water, uh, it breaks and he prays over it and it heals itself immediately and it never ends. It, it never, never leaks again. This is the way the story t tells it. So, um, yeah. I think sometimes we overthink it. I think it was a, a guy because it was sure. unusual and it would be easy for him to find. If you see a guy carrying the water, that's the one you're going to follow because he's the only one that's going to be there. Yep. So um, let's go to back, verse 26. Back to your original oh, question. No, no problem. You remember what it was? No. I heard about anointing. <laughs> no, it was about the difference between the... the Last Supper. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I see it as um, Mark, you don't have to have a lot of fanfare. It can be anywhere. You can take communion. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's really I mean, cool. it's not, you know, you don't have to be in a church. You don't have to maybe necessarily have the bread and the wine. You can have milk and cookies. You know, it's um, a very simplistic, but yet a moment that you commune with God. This is a with, the, um, with what you're taking. It's a really good statement, Kim. Um, so Pam and I and Megan Cabs and Pete Hoffman and I were at a camp director's camp counselor training and conversation this weekend and one of the most beautiful things about church camp is, is the innovation and imagination of children talking about how communion work in their lives and the way that we teach communion is, is that they used elements that were at the passover meal to make something sacred and so uh what are ways that our youth and children can do the same thing and i encourage adults to do the same thing i i, I do and it's important to recognize that some of those things um, can become competitive. Like um, at church camp, especially one of the things that Michael and I struggled with for a long time um, was the aspect of, so this small group does communion and they decide to do chips and salsa for communion. And you say, well, remember, ultimate question, when it comes to aspects of worship, why? Well, we wanted to do chips and salsa. 
sorry. But we just think it'd be great. Uh, I want to know why. Bread and wine here has a purpose, right? It's at the meal. Why is it at the meal? Well, wine was uh, accessible. It's what they had. And it had, and it was something that was sustaining to them. Bread was at the table. It was, it had a meaning. We turned bread into body. We turned wine into blood. It says so right there. You can't take a chip and you can, but I want to know why. If you want to take a chip and you want to take salsa, I want to know how and why that you're going to turn that into communion. Milk and cookies. Another perfect example. Uh, we did all those at church camp. So what typically happened in the past was Monday we did chips and salsa. Tuesday we did cookies and milk. Thursday we by the time you got to your closing communion, it was uh, it was I mean it was the craziest thing of all time. Cheese fries, you know. I mean, and um, again, I don't have a huge issue with it as long as we put theological thought into it in the same way that Mark did. Well, and it's something that at church camp, they the kids relate to something like that. Yes. And me as an adult, I relate more to the to the cup and the bread. Right. So it's it's a transitional thing as you get older. Well, I think but... I think you're right. I I also recognized at one point the adults were guiding the children as to what we I should do say, for it, communion. That would be that's a director issue as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I think we should have communion every every worship service at camp. Uh, but I think it should be handled in, in a way that it's what you're saying. Yeah, we, we came back from church camp once when Bobby was in junior high. And uh, had, we had Youth Sunday. And they did milk and cookies for the Youth Sunday. Oreos. Oreos. And Bobby did the whole thing about, it, it was by intention. So you you dipped it in. And when you got finished, the water, the milk was was black and dirty and, and ugly. And and he he related that to that the all your sins were washed away that were taken by by the blood of Jesus. Mm, that's awesome. And he was crucified as a child, a teenager. There were people that just came out of the woodwork upset about that, and he, he I don't think he ever got over it. Well, that's yeah. and again, yeah. I apologize on behalf of the church for awful ecclesiastical brain damage. <laughs> because here you've got a young person that has had a, a, a life-changing experience and they are sharing it with the adults of the church in such a way that says, this is how God spoke to me. And I wanted to share it with you uh, the way that we're sharing the gospel of Mark right now. Uh, do you see how deep this conversation is? I mean, it, it's something that I think the entire church has to have. And I, and I recognize that there are, Michael is is not necessarily opposed to the the uses of elements, but he is he is adamant that your closing worship should use bread and and juice. I mean, because those are the elements that they're going to go back home to. And so, if you're going to do something, um, we we have to, we have to do something that. Well, it 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 sh he should not have been crucified. A and B. Um, there needed to be backup from all sides of this spectrum. You know, the elders should have been involved. The deacons should have been involved. The minister should have been involved some way or another. So that when Bobby, one of our own, who we've raised to up in the faith could come up in front of the congregation and say, I really wanted to share this with you. And I wanted you to have a part of this. That's 
where I think Mark is establishing this ritual and tradition that we sometimes struggle with because <laughs> the Christian Church of Disciples of Christ is all about communion. It, I mean, you, you push it right down to our last button. What is what is it that who we really are? Because we are the church of a whole bunch of people. <laughs> um, communion is what separates us from everyone else. How we do it and why is what separates us. So with that being said, <clears throat> we're going to keep going. When they had sung the hymn, notice that there's a hymn, ding, 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 liturgy nerd right off the bat. They had supper. They had this institution of the Lord's Supper. Oh, and then they sung. Ha ha, take that, punks. They, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters. Well, thank you, uh, for it is written. Song again. That's right. You are all going to be thrown away. Um, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this day, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said, vehemently but that's not it it's with great emphasis with great emphasis <laughs> oh yeah that's that's with great emphasis even though i must die with you i will not deny you and all of them said the same yeah well good job <laughs> i want to keep going <clears throat> just just for the sake of uh time because we'll, we'll come back they went to a place called gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I, while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began, to be and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death, remain here and keep awake. And going a little far farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, uh, or father, for you will, uh, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. <clears throat> he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. <clears throat> so, same, uh, similar story uh, from Matthew. Um, when we talked about it for Matthew, you know, we, we kind of came to the idea that, you know, this is, this is pretty late at night. Um, they've been at Passover. So there's been several cups of wine by this point, at least four, at least four. <laughs> um, and then the, he added this, this other one, you know, this type of thing, you know, so there's a, uh, so there's, you know, they're, they're pretty tired. Uh, so there's a human aspect to it. This one's different though. 
Anybody recognize the difference between what we read last time and this one? I know. We've read a lot since then. <laughs> Thank you. He begs God to not let this happen. And I thought he did that in Matthew. If I remember I just But he doesn't get agitated oh, right okay. after the supper. Okay. And he falls onto the ground. Falls onto the ground. The 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 language here is different. Like the, the order of how events take place. He he doesn't go into a whole lot of the I come back and forth, you know, thing, but he does this as soon as it's done he becomes agitated you know the the, the institution of the the he, he has the peter's denial foretold and then right after that he just he gets aggravated you know you can tell he's just i need to do this i need i need i, I gotta go pray i gotta go pray okay what no no <laughs> why did he want them to stay awake that's the question we've been asking for two millennia <laughs> I, I mean it was probably not safe for him to be out by himself. I mean, we know that there were people that were trying to kill him. Um, but other than that, I don't. I don't. I'm, oh, I'm going to. He says he tells Peter, "Can you not stay awake and pray? Right. That you, you don't do what you're. What I'm. What I think you're going to do." That'd be good. Maybe he said that. I sure think he when he told him to stay away, that he told him that after he was asleep, right? The first time. Mm -hmm. He told him stay awake when he first took him up. Yeah. So there's there's definitely a the liturgy nerd in me says here's a hymn, there's a you better be better, and now we need to pray. Prayer is instituted here. In reading in reading in my Bible, mm -hmm. the two, it sounds like in Matthew it's more of a I know this is going to happen type thing, you know, more of a lament type <clears throat> aspect of it, where in Mark, he is agitated. Right. Jesus is agitated Where the other one. He's not, like I said, he's more like lamenting. He's like, why? I, I think he's human in Mark. Ah, boy. And, yeah. And he wants to go through others, something without somebody. You know what I'm saying? He needs to be more than you. Yes. He needs to be son of son of man. Yeah. I mean, he's not the son of God in this. In this is the big distinction. In math, in in Mark, he is one of us. He is just like us. He has divine abilities, but he is. He is a human being. The body's weak. The body is weak, but the spirit is strong, right? Like he knows that this has to happen, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to leave. We're doing great things in Matthew and Luke and John. He is, he knows he's the son of God. There's an extreme distinction. And they do that on purpose. If I could ever preach a sermon like that in less than 20 minutes, I would do it. But it's it would be impossible. It took him three hours. It took him three hours. You know, it's it's uh it's it's a it's an impossible thing. Uh the son of God, son of man distinction, I think is is extremely poignant. He is a human being in the gospel of Mark, which is why he's so approachable. And you know, if I was going through something had something like that facing me uh -huh. 
I would want my closest people. There you go. Praying for me, being with me, and not just like sleeping somewhere. You know, that would, I would almost yeah. feel deserted by them doing that. Oh, sure. And so that's yeah. kind of how I feel like Jesus might have felt. You also mentioned Q. So there's people yeah. here that that know him. Yes. <laughs> they know <laughs> that kid from, from they know they know this this kid from Nazareth. They know they know uh they know Peter, James, and John too. You know, they this so uh interesting you mentioned Q, uh this Garden of Gethsemane story uh is it looks as though Matthew and Luke copied from Mark on this one, and Mark obviously copied it from an from another source. But Mark could be the original source. <clears throat> but the agitation is a is a is a mark thing it's a marking thing he's <clears throat> i was also thinking of peter when when read that mm -hmm. peter didn't want to deny him but, but doesn't the, but the flesh is weak flesh is weak in matthew he's he's grieved and distressed yes it's, and, a, diff it's a different word for distress than the one in mark yes the marking refers to his soul, you know, that his soul is sad, even to death. You know, mm -hmm. it's very strong. I, I forget what your translation said, but verse 34. Uh, my mind soul is. Mm -hmm. Jesus's motions are rarely noted. Yeah, I mean, Mark, Mark is extremely different. I mean, it, it, I say extremely <clears throat> Remember, it's very important that when we when we do our Bible study that it's okay when we live daily lives to have a homogenized understanding of the resurrection story. I, I don't think I say that enough in our Bible studies. As I've gone back and started re-editing some of them, I'm like, man, Josh, you sound pretty hardcore about this. Uh, <laughs> but when I when I look at Bible study, I think that part of the most important part of that is, is that we don't read scripture the same way, expecting the same results every time. Right. I, I want to read the Gospel of Mark just as the Gospel of Mark. But that has to that have to take in consideration the audience of the Gospel of Mark. And the audience of Gospel of Mark was different than Matthew. And the audience for Luke and the audience for John. These were four distinct groups of people from distinct times in different places. And in a lot of senses, from dis distinct different socioeconomic statuses. Um, so <clears throat> everything that they're trying to accomplish is good for us because we we have this homogenized thing because we we know how to read and they didn't. Well, you mentioned last week there was a lot of Christian things yes. that was being done that, you know, I'm just going to argue. I don't think they know who they are at this point in time. I mean, and I think right. That's what you see in the books. It's evolving. John, you know, yeah, John's, John's almost fully here. He knows what's going on. But I get. I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, we're we're definitely New Testament now, and these are all new ideas to different people. I mean, they're living it and not understanding it. We're a few hundred thousand years later, and so what still do, we do still don't understand it, but. Yeah, and I think that we combine the books. I mean, that's what you're saying. You know, our, somewhere our brain remembers this. 
doesn't necessarily remember where it came from. I mean, which book? Right. Well, I mean, but, but think of the Christmas story. This. I mean, you know, you bring it and it's as you understand it and how it speaks to you. Well, these people only heard Mark. That's right. Only heard Paul. I mean, you know, they had to go to Jerusalem to hear somebody else. And that's a long ways. And you can imagine, I mean, I want you to think about it just like I was talking about the Mother's Day fiasco. Every single church in the United States, in some way or another, had a Mother's Day fiasco service. I mean, I mean, I want you to think about it. growing up. That's at some point or another, you, you remember when it stopped or how it was great or how it was wonderful. And then you go to another part of the country and you see how they do it. Just to give you a, a, a kind of an idea, because I'm, I'm piggybacking off of you, Robert, not changing it. The When, you know, I grew up. I say I grew up in Oklahoma. I spent the majority of my life in Oklahoma. I spent four years in Enid before dad got in the Navy. <clears throat> and then we moved to Yokosuka. And then we went to Waukegan, Illinois, and to Scottsbluff, Nebraska, and the Yakima, Washington, to Greenville, Texas, a.k.a. the the, the uh, bad, bad place for us. And then we met McAllister. And then I went from eighth through 12th grade there. So I can say eight years of my existence, well, five, uh, nine years of my existence I spent in Oklahoma. <clears throat> I go to college and then uh, I was here uh, until 2002. So uh, we can say 15 years of my life before uh, being married and moving away. Growing up in Oklahoma, we celebrated a few things. You know, you ce celebrated land runs, geographical importance things. Not at Frontier. Not at Frontier. Oh, no, no, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that. In the in the in the Oklahoma, we 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 talk about things and we we tend to forget all like of, the Mother's Day fiasco. It's exactly <laughs> the Mother's Day fi uh, fiasco in Frontier. So we celebrated the land runs. We uh, celebrated um, at that point uh, the the Murrah bombing thing. Uh, we had a, this is before the Memorial Center was built. I remember distinctly. My dad, who was one of the chaplains on call the day after it happened, uh, was in Oklahoma City. Uh, when they had the, the big ceremony downtown, my dad was asked to be the chaplain to pray for that. I remember having military days be extremely important, like Veterans Day, and you know, um, and, and, and understanding the difference between Memorial and Veterans Day is extremely important to me. And then you get to the 4th of July, which is this declaration of independence that didn't have anything to do with really Oklahoma, except for the entire United States, right? Like, and understanding this distinction of those things. I moved to Virginia and there is a day that they, they, uh, they call it decorating day and it's around Memorial day and decoration day, uh, is the day that they decide to put all of the, bunting around the sanctuary uh a patriotic bunting around the sanctuary uh the flag that was used during the battle of northern aggression brought into the sanctuary <laughs> you have the uh everybody dresses in costume um and they come to worship that way uh it it was a new experience for me. 
And obviously not one that I was willing to die on the mountain of the first year that I was there. Um, and, and then, then you ask, you start asking questions. Why do we do it this way? We always have. It's, it's because we always have. And I say, well, is, is there a theological reasoning? Like, are we honoring the dead or are we, you know, are, what, what are we, what are we trying to accomplish? I don't know. We just like doing it. It's fun. <laughs> okay. That's Stay a, on our calendar. That's right. We, it's, that's a legitimate answer. I mean, you know, you can do worship. Worship can be fun, you know, I, mean, I don't have a problem with that. But when you get down to this, uh, the, the part that's important is, is that Mark's audience doesn't doesn't understand Matthew's audience. So if you go to Matthew's audience and you start saying, well, Mark says, but Matthew says over here, oh, no, no, this is how you're supposed to do it. You can see how there's going to be a conflict. And so this is this is really what the Gospel of John does. This is says, OK, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you guys are sweet. You have the synopsis of Jesus's life and we appreciate your institutions that you've created for us. Here's how you should do it. And then, and somewhere in between that, you know, you have the, the acts of the apostles. And so uh, you, you have this moment where everybody says, okay, we all can agree on worship this way because that Peter or that Paul guy uh, messed us all up and told us how we could be doing things. And everybody couldn't agree on that. And the gospels were written after that. So you, you see, this is why it's important that when we study scripture this way, I, you see, I went all the way back in a circle, <laughs> back to the original statement. When you study the scriptures this way, it starts to uh, allow you to say, hey, my story is as legitimate as the person sitting across from me from the table. And how I hear the scripture is as legitimate as the person that sits next to me in the pew. And a homogenized understanding of the scripture is not a bad thing. It's just it's important to recognize the differences and and to honor them, um, not necessarily take away from but the Mother's Day fiasco should never, ever happen again. So and that's a, that's where we'll end our Bible study for today. With, we, with the the part in the story about the disciples not praying, would that also be a lesson to yes. say no matter what your situation is, pray? Yes, 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 yes. Prayer was evidently not a part of their prayer life or okay. a part of their life. And so the liturgy nerd in me says, you, you notice how it started. He fell down. He fell prostrate onto the ground. He gives them a process and then a procedure and then says, you should be praying, even if you're exhausted. You know, you but should be doing Saturday. it. It's not Saturday. It, for him, it's it's not a matter. <laughs> no, yes. Sabbath is, Sabbath no, is not mentioned. Not to pray. It's not Saturday yet. Sure. Well, or or Sunday. I'll, I'll, I'll move it to, to our day. It's not Sunday yet. I think that the part that I want you to catch from that is, is that the church evidently is starting to say, look, your connection can needs to be through prayer. You have the ability to do that without having to go. So say we can talk to God. We can talk to God anywhere, anytime, in any place. And you should be doing that. That's what that end of that lesson should be, um, which, you know, I hate saying that. But when you're talking about liturgy, Prayer has to happen. It doesn't, it's not an afterthought. It, it needs to be the forethought. I don't hear an apology. 
Oh, yeah? Because there are some times that I don't have a good night's sleep on Saturday in church. I tend to just <laughs> So are you going to start calling so that when we not off? Oh, my goodness. Can you not stay awake for 20 minutes? Can you not stay awake for 20 minutes? Uh, okay. And uh, he's breathing real heavy. <laughs> I can listen to Jim speak all day long. It's that deep, you know, resonant, sonorous, deep voice and that's when you should say this is this sermon is directed to the Cindy <laughs> South, Saint southwest corner of the <laughs> sanctuary. Found the pulpit moment. Pastor that we had years ago, an older gentleman said, maybe it was maybe it was Lynn Scott that said they'd rather hear babies cry in church than a man snoring. <laughs> oh my God, that is awesome. I know when we used to skip church uh, in Bible college, which you weren't supposed to do too often. Right. It's like, did you, were you in service? Like, yeah, I was with Sister Sheets and Pastor Pillow. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as I, as I stopped the recording, <laughs> she has it on there. Uh, I uh, I would say I would say this. I I think my my dad. I'm going to use a quote from my dad. My dad said to me one time. He said when we were in a Bible study like this is, and I remember this very distinctly. My dad said, "Listen, if for some reason you find a place of rest, even in the midst of worship, and you have the ability to to sleep." be a part of the, uh, the kingdom of God and find rest and Sabbath in that place, then I would much rather you be here in the sanctity and in the, the presence of God sleeping and finding rest than out in the world being agitated, filled with chaos. It's yeah. not Thanks. so much that. It's just, I want to close my eyes. See, I was trying and to help so you when there. you do your prayer, it's like, oh, I'm so So the next time I'm saying... <laughs> Everybody, please bow your head and close your eyes, except for Cindy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny stuff. Yeah, we'll we'll end it there. The recording there. <laughs>